All right, who is an Avengers fan here? Is there anyone who likes the Avengers? Who, I thought there would be more of you out there. No one is cheering it. No one really likes them that much. Who, who's your favorite Avenger character? Tell me. You have to shout it loud because I can't hear really. Hulk. That is incredible, the Hulk. Anyone else? Oh, come on. There's got to be more. Iron Man is my favorite. I love Iron Man. Who else is, is your favorite Avenger? Thor? Spider-Man? These are great. I love these Avengers. Anyone have like one of those off ones? My, my daughter loves uh, Black Widow. What is it? Tracks? I can't hear you. Okay. I don't know who that one is. See? That's it. They're all up there. This is one of my favorite movies. Um, this is Infinity War. I remember when this movie came out, I was overwhelmed with excitement. I got to the theater and I was glued to my seat the entire movie because uh, I was so anticipating that the Avengers would get together and they would team up and they would defeat Thanos, who was bent in his twisted plan of getting six infinity stones, whereby he could wipe out half of the universe's existence. Because he thought in his mind that if he did that, he would save the universe from extinction. So I was watching this entire movie, and I was on the edge of my seat the entire time, just waiting for that moment when the Avengers would come together and defeat him. So you can imagine my shock that I'm sitting at, at the end of the movie, and it didn't happen. Thanos got all six stones. He successfully got them and wiped out half of the world's population, including many of the Avengers. Everything went dark, and I'm still sitting in my seat. I didn't know what to do with that. I was, I was so baffled because I had never seen a Marvel movie, a, an Avengers movie, where they did not get together and defeat the enemy. I could not in my mind. I didn't have a space in my comprehension for the Avengers being in a war that they could not win against an enemy more powerful than they could imagine. That blew me away. I don't think I left the theater for a long time because I was overwhelmed by this. But when I thought about this, it reminds me that that's very similar to how it is today in our world. That there are so many people, especially followers of Jesus, that have no idea that there is a spiritual war taking place all around us. And it is a war that we cannot win against an enemy who is more powerful than we thought or imagined. So many believers think that they can just coast along in their life on their way to heaven. That everything is going just fine as they casually make their way through life until difficulty hits, until doubt and discouragement and depression hit, until they start being persecuted or there's aggression against them because of their faith in Jesus, or they face difficulties in their life. Then they start to realize, oh, something else is going on here beyond what I'm thinking. Only then do they realize that we are really in a war, or actually more accurate term would be a wrestling match. We're always wrestling against an enemy that is bent on destroying us. Just as the Avengers realized that they needed something more, that what they were doing and who they were was not enough to beat Thanos. So in Endgame, they came up with a different plan in order to defeat him. They needed something more. And just like 
the Avengers needed something more in that. We need something more if we are ever going to have a chance in this spiritual war. If we're going to have a chance in the battles that we face day after day against this, the forces against us, we need something more. In his final address to the believers in Ephesus, Paul is so brilliant as he gives an eye-opening portrayal of the spiritual war that is taking place against Satan, but also a confidence-boosting prescription of what we can do to be ready for that war, and not just ready for that war, but successful in it. In short, what Paul is going to tell us through this passage is simply this. The Christian life is a war that cannot be fought or won alone. The Christian life is a, uh, a war that cannot be fought or won alone. Now, that sounds a little bit discouraging and defeating, right? But uh, it's not, because there's more. Yes, that's true. So then, we stand together as the children of God, strengthened with the power of God, clothed in the armor of God, and upheld by prayer in the spirit of God. This is what Paul says in chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab it and open it to chapter 6 of Ephesians. We're going to start at verse 10. You can also follow along on the screen. This is what Paul says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, also for me that my words, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains." that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. God, we ask that you would help us to be aware of what is taking place and what we can do to be ready and how we can be successful in the battles we face day after day. We ask in your name, amen. Before we jump into this passage, I want to give us a little bit of a, of a review. We are in the last message of our series in Ephesians called Together in Christ. And we have been going through this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, where he gives us an incredible treatment of the gospel and how it impacts our lives. He began this letter by unfolding God's promises and his purposes, which he planned way before the foundation of the world, that he was going to redeem a new people through the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ. And he was going to put Jesus Christ as the head of the church and all of creation. It is an incredible treatment of what the gospel is, what our life was like before Christ, and how it's been changed because of him. Then he emphasized that this plan included a new distinctive, that through union with Christ, everyone was on equal standing now. We have equal status, equal members, equal sharers in the same 
promise, regardless of our ethnicity, our background, our status, our abilities, none of those things matter. Those old days of division and discrimination, they're all gone. And a brand new oneness has emerged. One family, one savior, one people. Because of this, Paul says we need to live our lives in a way that's worthy of this gospel. If God has redeemed us in such an incredible way, our lives ought to show the change that has taken place, which means we need to put away that behavior that was associated with our former life. We need to live like God wants us to live, live the gospel out in everyday life. That's what should change inside of our lives. And this shows up when we live the gospel in every relationship that we have, whatever it may be. We need to live out the gospel because unity, diversity, purity, and harmony, those are the characteristics that Paul says characterize our new life and new community. But now in chapter 6, Paul is going to bring us back down into reality. He's going to open our eyes to something bigger than we thought about before. He reminds us of the opposition that we are going to take because of our faith in Christ. Beneath what we see on the surface, there's an unseen spiritual battle taking place, and it is raging. You see, if we walk worthy of our calling, in humility rather than pride, in unity rather than divisiveness, in the new self rather than the old self, in love rather than lust, in um, light rather than darkness, and wisdom rather than foolishness, in mutual submission rather than in self-independence then you can be sure that the enemies of God are going to rage against us to try to destroy everything that God is making. The Christian life is a war that we cannot fight or win alone. So then, we stand together as the children of God, clothed or with the power of God, clothed in the armor of God, and upheld by prayer in the Spirit of God. So we're going to walk through, what's the plan? How do we get ready for this war? How do we be successful in this attack against us? Here's the plan. You should have grabbed some notes on your way in. Hopefully you grab them and, and we'll follow along to help us remember how do we be successful in this. The first thing that we need to do is to realize that we are in a fight with a real and a powerful and a spiritual enemy. We are in a fight with a real, spiritual, and powerful enemy. You know, the Ephesian believers would know all about this because when Paul was at that, that town before, that city, uh, a lot of incredible things happened. People gave up all of their demonic practices, their witchcraft, their magic, all of that they gave up. In fact, in that town, these people would be well aware of a spiritual battle taking place because a group of Jewish itinerant exorcists, which is just a crazy idea, they came to Ephesus and they saw this man who was possessed by a demon and they tried to cast out that demon from the sky. And they said, in the name of Paul, we cast you out. Or in the name of Christ, through Paul, we cast you out. And they, this demon-possessed man cries out, hey, I know Paul and I know Christ, but I don't know you. And he jumped on those, those people, those exorcists, and beat them, ripped off their clothes, and all of them ran away naked and terrified. These people would know about spiritual warfare. So when Paul goes through and he starts talking about this, it wouldn't be anything that would catch them off guard. In fact, he doesn't really explain a lot about these powers because they may have already known them. 
In verse 12, he goes on to talk about, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is giving this clear picture of this spiritual struggle, that our our real struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people that we can see. It's not against things that are taking place in our realm of, of ability to see but against spiritual forces. And by the way, this is the only time in all of Paul's writing that he tells us that we are fighting against spiritual forces. Back at the very beginning, verse 10, Paul talks, uh, or verse 11, Paul talks about the devil. That's the first person he mentions, the devil. The Bible refers to the devil in a lot of different ways. He is called the ruler of demons, the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He is identified as the great dragon, a roaring lion, the vile one, the tempter, the accuser. Fifty-two times he is called Satan, which means adversary. Thirty-five times he is called Satan, which means slanderer. This fallen archangel, along with all the fallen angels that became demons, have been tempting and corrupting mankind since the fall. They are evil and cunning and powerful. It's an invisible enemy against whom no human being is a match for. So Paul goes on to mention a little bit more to make it a little bit heightened. So he gives us some categories of these spiritual forces. He doesn't go into detail. He just names them. He talks about who they are. Uh, Different categories of these powers, cosmic powers of darkness. Paul's emphasis here, he's not trying to, to show you or give a treatise on what these people are or what these beings are like. What he's trying to show is, hey, Satan and his army are organized. They are structured to be effective and powerful in fighting against people. They've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. The idea, Paul says, is not to know all about who these people are, these beings are, but to know that they are powerful and they are fighting against you. If you are interested in finding out a little bit more about who they are, I put a book in your recommended resources, but I want to give you a little caution not to go too far down that road, to start dabbling. We are to be aware of what's going on, the the people or the beings that are against us, but not to be obsessed with them. Many things happen when you start going down that road, but to remember that God is greater than all of those beings. So check out that book if you want to know more. Paul is simply trying to say that the real fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's a spiritual force. So I want you to think of something. I want you to think in your life right now of a single person or situation that is giving you the hardest time of your life. What is it that you are in right now? What kind of situation are you in that you are wrestling with the most? Right now, if it's a person or a situation or something with your family or something at work, what is it that's going on? Do you have something in your mind? Maybe write it down in your notes. If you have that in your mind and are thinking about that, I want to bring out something to you. Whoever it is or whatever it is, that's not your real enemy. In fact, turn to your neighbor really quick and say, that's not your enemy. It's not your enemy. 
Whatever it is that you're facing, that person that's giving you a hard time, that situation that's causing difficulty in your life, that's not your real enemy. Every decision that we make, every thought that we entertain, every action that we take can be part of a spiritual battle that's taking place around us. You might think that we're wrestling against things like verbally or physically or financially or even emotionally, oftentimes physically, but behind that, there's a spiritual battle that's taking place that's trying to direct the details of that difficulty in your life. Everything that occurs in this physical, visible world is connected to the wrestling match that's taking place in the spiritual realm. And all of those things, they're either going to lead us to align with God's will or give in to the enemy's schemes. What Paul is saying is, look, hey, there's a spiritual war that's going on right now. The devil and all of his beings are wrestling against you in every part of your life with people, with situation, with problems and difficulties. It's all coming against you. And he's crafty. He's got all these schemes which imply uh, a craftiness, a cunningness, a deception. It's the same word that's used of an animal that's hunting its prey. Satan is, is so crafty. He's been around since the beginning of time, and he's a student of human beings. He's been watching humans all throughout history to know everything about them, what they love, what they don't love, what traps them, what doesn't trap them. He knows you. He watches and observes all that's taking place. So he will use all of his schemes, all of his strategies to try to tempt you away from following God, which include slander or ridicule or persecution, or beliefs and lifestyles that are, are corrupt and against God. He will try to put doubts in your mind and lead you away from trusting that God is good and that he loves you. He will tempt you to immorality and worldliness and pride and self-reliance. He will try to get you to be satisfied with yourself instead of him. So how do we get prepared for this? How do we be successful in this battle against Satan, we have to realize he is active and his spiritual army is active against us. We are in a war that we cannot fight or win alone. So how do we fight? We stand together as the children of God with the power of God, clothed in the armor of God and upheld by prayer in the spirit of God. First, Paul says we stand together. How do we fight? We stand together. Look at how Paul says that. Four times in these verses, he says stand. Obviously, he's trying to get our attention. After doing all these things, stand firm. You can't miss his emphasis on this. Now, I want you to catch it because Paul is saying we are not in God's army advancing against the enemy. We're not with our battle armor on raging against the enemies of God and the powers of darkness infiltrating their kingdom. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want you to stand firm. Stand. We're not attacking we're standing. We're holding our position. We're not surrendering to the opposition, but we're prevailing against it. We're maintaining a critical position even while we're under attack. The victory, friends, has already been won. So we don't have to worry about the end. In fact, what Paul says in chapter 1 is so important. He's giving his opening address and starting in verse 19, he says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? 
who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen here. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet. The battle's already won. We're not trying to win a war. That's already been done. What we're trying to do is stand firm in the victory that we have achieved through Christ. We used to be enemies of God. We used to be in Satan's kingdom. And he had no care for us because we were doing what he wanted us to do. But now that we have fallen in love with Christ, and now that we have been changed by him, now that we are in God's kingdom, we are wrestling against the enemies of darkness. So we need to stand firm. And by the way, it doesn't mean that you have to stand firm all alone by yourself. And if you find yourself standing alone, it means you're not taking advantage of all the resources that you have at your disposal. God is with you. You're never standing alone in any battle that you face. But not just that. This whole community, not just this community, but the entire church of Christ is standing together with you. Do you know that the Roman army used to have this strategy that when they would form a line of defense against an enemy, they would all, all the soldiers would stand shoulder to shoulder with their shields and they would make this wall called a phalanx and it would go for literally a mile or more of soldiers creating this impenetrable wall as they stood side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Friends, in this battle, in this war, we are not fighting together. We're not, we're not fighting alone. We're not standing alone. We are fighting and standing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can hold the line. We can stand firm because we stand together. That's how we fight in this battle. We stand. Second, we realize that we are children of God. In all of my study and preparation for this, many commentators left this part out and overlooked it. But I feel like it's such an important factor, overlooked part of the verse. In verse 10, it says, be strong in the Lord. In the Lord. This is the position of the follower of Jesus. In the Lord, in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul's been getting out through this letter, that we are together in Christ. In chapter uh, 2, he's talking about how God has brought us into his household. He's made us citizens and members of his own household. There's more. The fundamental reality presented throughout all of Ephesians is that because of Christ, his life is our life. His power, our power. His truth, our truth. His way, our way. And as Paul goes on to say, his strength is our strength. Oh, this truth is so foundational. I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. The most powerful being in the universe is my father. We teach our kids in the moments that they are afraid and fearful, whether they have a night terror or they're in a moment where they are afraid and they're feeling their, their body tense up, that we give them a phrase that they say over and over. In fact, my daughter said it to me this morning. It's this, I am a child of God and no evil can harm me. I am a child of God and no evil can harm me. I'm a child of God and no evil can harm me. It directs them not to their own strength, 
but to the strength of the one who provides it, and that's God. So friends, when Satan comes to remind you of your past, you remind him of his future. When he comes to remind you of your sin, you remind him of your savior. When he comes to point out all of your vices, you point out your victory that you have in Christ. And when he comes to amplify your guilt, you remind him of God's grace. You are a child of God. And because you are a child of God, you have the power of God at your disposal. Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Actually, that word is be strengthened in the Lord. It's a passive tense. It's not something that we do. It's something that we receive. The strength that we have is not our own. It comes from something outside of us to be empowered by something that has an external source. Listen, we are never strong enough to battle alone. We don't have the strength or the power to wrestle against the powers of darkness. But when we are strong in the Lord, even a little bit of his strength is sufficient to win any battle that we face. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or like Jude said in verse 24 of his letter, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It is not the amount of strength that is important, but the source. God is giving you the strength, and his strength is all you need. The Christian life is a war that we cannot fight or win alone. So then, we stand together as the children of God, strengthened by the power of God. And he goes on to take the bulk of the passage to talk about how we're clothed in the armor of God. These truths are so foundationally important for you and me to hear and apply to our lives. We stand together. We are children of God. We are strengthened by the power of God. We are clothed in the armor of God. The armor of God is an amazing thing. Let me give you three things before we jump into this really quick. Um, First thing that I want you to say is when Paul say, says, take up the armor of God, he's actually saying, put it on. Put on the armor of God. But here's what's significant. Back previously when Pastor Kyle was talking about putting on our new selfies, putting on the new clothes, that's a daily thing that we do. In this passage, what Paul is saying is you take up the armor of God once. You put it on and it stays on. It's not like when we go to a sport or a competition or a game, we go and we put our uniform on, we go play the game, then the game ends and we take our uniform off. There's no time that you don't have the armor of God on. You put it on once and it stays on forever. In fact, I, I love what uh, a Puritan author named William Grinnell wrote. He says, our armor is to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. In this armor, we are to stand and watch and never relax our vigilance. It's like the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian, they can't ever take off their helmet or their armor. They have to have it on all the time. We don't take off any of that armor. It stays on all the time. Second thing to say is that this is God's armor. It says, uh, Take up the armor of God. This is his own armor. I want you to let that thought think, sink into your, your mind for a second. This is God's armor. 
that he is taking off and he's handing to you. It is not some secondhand thrift store type armor or cheap imitation that you might get off of Timu. You're not getting a cheap product. You're getting the real thing given to you by God himself. In fact, Isaiah 59, 17 says about God, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is God's armor that he is giving to you. Third thing, Paul is not trying to list out every piece of armor that we as followers of Jesus need or have. He's not focusing on the types of armor. He's focusing on the completeness of the protection that we get with the armor that he gives us. So he's not going to go into detail. In fact, most commentators agree that we really don't have an idea of what each of these pieces really mean. We're just going to give it our best guess, which is what I'm going to do this morning. If you want to disagree with me, you're welcome to do that. Many people do, uh, and that's okay. But I'm going to give you, I'm up here so I get to tell you what I think. And this is what God's word I think says. But in order to do that, I really, I need a volunteer. Is there any, uh, like, second or third grader that could help me this morning? Anyone want to stand on the stage for, like, the next five minutes? Anyone else? Anyone want to be a volunteer? If not, I'm going to choose you. All right. Back there. Come on up. All right. Parker. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Appreciate your help today. We're going to be talking about the armor of God, and you get to be my model for today. Couldn't have picked a better guy. You look great. All right, so we're going to talk about the armor of God uh, this morning, and it's so important that you get a, a picture of what this is and how it will help you in your life. The first thing that Paul says is you need to take on the belt of truth. Here is the belt of truth. Now, uh, this one says truth. You can put that on. Um, Maybe a little, there you go. Uh, the belt of truth, the Romans used to wear a belt. It was a leather, thick leather belt that they would put on that would uh, hold a lot of things together. Most importantly, their tunic. But what's important about the belt is when a soldier was about to go into battle or needed to run or hustle, he would take his tunic that was just kind of like a, a little dress and he would pull it up and make shorts. And he would stuff it in to his, it's good, that's all right. Stuff it into his belt. And that would give him the freedom of movement as he went through the battle or as he had to run to a certain place. The belt of truth is so important. So moving this into the spiritual realm, this refers to knowing God's truth so well that we can battle against the lies of Satan. At the very beginning of time, Eve was uh, battling against the serpent, against the devil. And the devil came to Eve by way of the serpent and said, did God really say started to question God's goodness and trustworthiness to Eve. She fell and was deceived by what the serpent said. She thought that God was holding out on them and wasn't giving them anything that was good for them. Satan is always going to do this. Satan's going to throw things at you to try to get you to feel and believe the lies that he's telling you. He'll use peer pressure in your life to get you to think that. What other people think of you, what they say about you, what they want you to do and participate in, that peer pressure will be lies coming at you, and it will tempt you to follow and not believe God's goodness or trustworthiness. Sometimes Satan will use uh, other things like 
making it feel like God's word is too difficult to understand. I don't know what this says, and God's word doesn't speak to that cultural thing that we're dealing with today. God doesn't care about what I'm doing right now. He doesn't have something to say about the issues I'm facing in this world. That confusion about God's word is a lie from Satan to try to get us to, tr- to doubt and not trust God's goodness or trustworthiness. As if that wasn't enough, that he gives us more things, the, the lies of, of uh, God doesn't care about you. Look at all the pain that you're experiencing. Look at all the difficulties you're experiencing. If we don't have the truths of God, if we don't know the truth that God has given us in his word about who he is and what he says about us in this world, we will fall for every lie that Satan provides us. So we put on the belt of truth and say, I will not be encumbered. I will not be held back by any of the lies that come against me. It keeps us believing the truth of the gospel. Second thing that Paul says we need to put on is the breastplate of righteousness. All right, you ready, Parker? There we go. Man, that fits you great. Breastplate of righteousness. Now, in the uh, Roman army, the breastplate was incredibly important. It was made out of leather and uh, sewn on with metal pieces to protect the most vital organs of the body, like the heart and the lungs and the bowels. In the Jewish thinking, if we move this into the spiritual realm, the heart was the center of our will and our mind. And then our bowels inside our intestines was the seat of our emotions, And what Paul is pointing out is we need to protect this area because Satan's greatest area of attack is always in our mind, in our thoughts, in our emotions. He'll try to get you to believe things that are not true. So you'll do things that are not true and feel things that are not true. We need to protect the most important parts of our bodies with the breastplate of righteousness. There is no let up in his slander that Satan brings against people who follow Jesus. He will try to convince you that because of the sin that you just committed, because of this habit you cannot seem to break, the thoughts that fill your mind, your failure to obey God's word like you ought, it all results in one thing, that God doesn't want you anymore. That God is going to cast you away, that your salvation is gone. God does not want you anymore because look at what a failure you are. We need the breastplate of righteousness to help us. And how does it help us? Because it reminds us that I am clothed not in my own goodness or righteousness. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There is no greater defense than knowing that I have been justified by Christ which means I am given his righteousness and therefore I stand before him uncondemned and accepted. So in the moment that Satan comes attacking us, thinking that we are not good enough, that God doesn't love us, that he doesn't want us anymore, we are reminded and we hold tightly to the truths. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or this passage in John where it says, who shall, or in Romans, who shall bring any charge against God's elect It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes through us. So when we stand with this, when God is looking at us, he is not seeing our failures, our weaknesses, our brokenness. He's seeing Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Do you see what power that that is? When we are tempted and distracted, we have the power to say, it's okay. 
I might be all of those things, but I am not clothed in my own righteousness. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Paul goes on to say that we need the shoes that get us ready for the gospel of peace. I don't know how you want to put those on. Maybe slide them over your shoes or something like that. All right, give it your best shot, or we'll just hold it up. This is the, the, the readiness of the gospel. I should have thought this through before, before doing that. Let me tell you while he's trying to figure that out. Most likely what Paul is thinking of in the shoes is probably not sandals. <laughs> That'll work. Is probably not sandals. I don't know if you've ever tried to run in sandals. Doesn't work. If you ever try to climb in sandals, doesn't work. You ever try to work in sandals? I am always dropping things on my toes. That is not the best footwear for battle. Sandals don't work. So what Paul probably has in mind are like boots. It's a boot that would give support and strength and protection to the feet. More than that, they would be studded on the bottom to give traction for the soldiers to stand firm in the battles that they were facing. What Paul is saying is you need to have the truth of the gospel on your feet. You need to stand in the gospel. What Paul's probably not saying, a lot of commentators say, Paul's talking about preaching the gospel here. That's not true. Every other part of the armor is defensive, and it's talking about how we stand firm against the enemy. So what I feel what Paul is trying to say is that we are standing in the gospel. The gospel is that truth that we are made right in the eyes of God. We are now at peace with God. So when Satan comes to attack us and say that you are going to fall away, your sin is too great, you will never make it to heaven, you are a terrible pilgrim, you are a terrible soldier, you will never make it to heaven. We hold tightly to say, my confidence is not in my own righteousness, my confidence is in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is where I take my stand and where I get my confidence from because God has changed from being my enemy to my defender. And we remember if God is for me, who can be against me? Romans 8, 31. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Therefore, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The gospel is where I take my stand, not in my own goodness, my own works, my own righteousness, but only in the gospel of peace. Next piece of armor that he tells us to put on is to take up the shield of faith. You're looking great. The shield of faith, whereby we can quench the darts of the enemy. Now, this is important. Uh, in the, the time that this was written, enemies would most likely have arrows that they would wrap with linen or twine, and they would dip it in pitch, light it on fire, and send it over to the enemy. And when it would hit the enemy, it would spray off to try to cause as much damage as possible. So what they would do is they would soak their shield, a large four-foot shield that was made of wood with leather and metal on the top, soak it in water so that when the darts would come, it would extinguish the flames. Darts come in, in incredible ways. Satan knows exactly what to do to get to each one of you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows where you struggle the most. He knows where you doubt the most, what will cause you the greatest amount of discouragement. He knows what will make you ineffective. 
in the war, and he will send those arrows at you, and they will not stop. Last night, I was sitting in Chick-fil-A with my family, and I couldn't believe what I saw. I saw a, uh, a person, and he was talking with his daughter in such a demeaning way and just over and over and over berated her about how bad she was at this sport, how terrible she was at this sport, how bad she was doing in, in school, how bad this was in her life, how bad she was acting in her, in, in her, in her schoolwork and in her appearance. And it came over and over and over again. And it hurt because I couldn't imagine what this poor little girl was feeling. But I'm thinking of the same thing because that's what comes to every single one of us. Those arrows come to us over and over in an onslaught to get us to doubt God's goodness, that his love is not enough. He'll send those darts. And the only way that we can fight them off is with the shield of faith that says, no, I believe God loves me. No, I believe in his goodness. No matter what you say, his love is proved to me because of Jesus Christ. Faith in God's promises keeps me standing and fighting off the arrows of the wicked one. One of the last things that he tells us to take is the helmet of salvation. Sorry, I'm going to mess up your hair. It's okay. It'll pop back. Helmet of salvation. Soldier's helmet was so important. It was made out of leather coated with metal. Sometimes it's just metal with cheek guards. But it was meant to help. Good luck. It was meant to help protect their head from the, these, these battles. In the battles, they would have these big, giant broadswords. They'd be swinging all over the place. And if they hit your head... That's it, right? I mean, we send our girls with helmets on when they ride bikes or rollerblades or the hoverboard because if you lose your head, I mean, you lose everything, right? You, it, you don't need to say anything else, right? You lose it all if you lose your head. So when it comes to our armor, the helmet of salvation is exactly that. We need to put on the helmet of salvation to guard our minds and our thoughts Salvation saying, God has completely rescued me. He's transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He has changed my entire life. And not only that, but my hope is not in this world, but in the next world to come, in the future, in heaven. My hope is there. I don't have to worry about what's taking place in this world. I don't have to worry about all the challenges that I'm facing because I know my hope is in the future. Like Paul said to the Thessalonians, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And as the helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Be encouraged that our hope is not here. It is in heaven. And one day, the one who saved us now will save us in the future. The last piece of armor we have is the sword of the spirit. Be careful, it's sharp. Sword of the Spirit. This is probably a smaller sword, six to eight inches, maybe 18 inches long. Uh, it was designed for hand-to-hand -hand combat, close combat. Not a big sword, but used uh, very specifically. And this refers to God's word that was used very specifically to ward off the enemies. In fact, uh, I read the Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress at night with my uh, girls. And I found this book. This is the second part of a children's version of the Pilgrim's Progress uh, let me read it for you because it's so good. The children are on the way to the celestial city. They're with great heart who has the sword of the spirit. Just then, two thieves named deceit and falsehood jumped over the walls of salvation. 
and blocked the path. They shouted, stop right there. Give the children to us. They belong to our master, Beelzebub. He is the ruler of the city of destruction. No, Greatheart said. These children belong to the true king. Your master is a thief. You've only come to steal and destroy. The men attacked Greatheart with their swords, but Greatheart fought valiantly. As they fought, the two thieves told Greatheart, join us. Beelzebub will make you rich. Now listen carefully. The wages of sin is death. Greatheart shouted back, knocking the swords out of their hands. The two thieves ran away like cowards, but the children were shaken with fear. Greatheart encouraged them, no weapon formed against the king's people can remain. He fought them with God's word. Specifically, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness with Satan himself, he used God's word specifically. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. If you don't know God's word well, you are going to be falling captive or prey to the devil all over the place. If you don't know the word of God well, you will be trapped by him and confused by him. We need God's word to help us fend off all the attacks he's given us. We do it with God's truth in his word, not with our own mind or set. Satan will always find out where you're ignorant and confused and attack you there. My life verse is 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Friends, grab the word of God, study it, know it, learn it so that you can fight well against the attacks of the enemy. Thank you, Parker. You have been fantastic. I don't know if you want to disassemble now or if you want to make your way to your seat wearing it. Do you want to take it off? Or? All right, you got it. I need it back at the end of the day. But Paul gives us one last thing, and I'm going to say this rather quickly because we're running short on time. Paul uh, says one last thing before he closes. He says, and prayer is important. It's like this. When we're in a battle, I've seen it over and over again, especially uh, more recently in uh, the battle over in the Middle East, is that when soldiers get trapped and the fire is coming in excessively and they have no way out, they always call for air support. They bring on the, the, uh, the jets, bring on that big fire ship, that C-17 that is incredible. Bring on the firepower from above. That is a game changer. That's air superiority. And what Paul is saying is, look, in all of these things, there's one more thing you need, and that's prayer. You need to seek God in prayer because that is our very life breath. That's our power. We need to pray all the time and in all ways. In fact, Paul says there are four characteristics of our prayer that we need to take advantage of. One, we need to pray at all times, no matter where you are or what you're doing, we can always be praying. When people ask me what my prayer life is like, is it's constant. I'm always trying to talk with God, whether I'm in the car, whether I'm in the shower, whether I'm walking, whether I'm working. I'm always trying to find a way to talk. It's not always meant to be done in uh, really long prayers, but just continual conversation. Paul says in a variety of ways, he says, with all prayers and supplications in ways that are great. 
in ways that are many. In fact, you don't have to pray in one way. You can pray publicly or privately. You can pray in loud cries or in soft whispers or even silently. You can pray deliberately planned or spontaneously while sitting, standing, kneeling, lying down at home or church while working or traveling with hands folded or hands raised, with eyes open or closed, with your head bowed or lifted. You can pray wherever, whenever, in whatever situation that you are in. And don't stop. Keep on doing it. Pray with perseverance, fighting for God to do something in your life. And then pray for all the saints. Pray for all the saints. Paul says pray for Everyone, we are in this new community, this new family. We need each other. Pray for each other. Paul was trapped in house arrest. Two years he was chained to a Roman guard. People came to him still, listened to the gospel, were changed. But he says, pray for me. I need the boldness of the gospel to be able to speak clearly and that God's power would go out and people would be changed. Sisters and brothers, please, I'm asking you personally, pray for me to be bold in my faith. Pray for me that I won't fall prey to the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the evil one. Pray for me that I will stand strong in my fight because I pray for you. Pray for each other that God would do something great in and through us, that we'll stand up against the fight of our lives, against the spiritual forces of darkness that are around us. I think if I'm honest, I would say that I would rather it be like uh, how it was with Elisha and his servant. Back in Second in Kings, uh, they were trapped in this city and an army had encircled the entire city and they were coming for, uh, for Elisha and a servant to take them and kill them. And he was freaking out, worried. And then Elisha says, come up to the top of this, this uh, building. And they get up to the top of the wall and he looks out and he prays that God would open his servant's eyes. And there were thousands of chariots and angels all around the city encircling them. And he says, do you see the battle that's going on? It is greater because God is greater. I wish that we could see the battle that's going on around us with our own eyes. But even if we can't see it, it doesn't change the reality that it is there. And that we need to fight it. Spiritual warfare is not a battle that we choose, but we're called to engage in because of that, we need to remember that the Christian life is a war that we cannot fight or win alone. So then, brothers and sisters, we stand together as the children of God, strengthened with the power of God, clothed in the armor of God, and upheld by prayer in the spirit of God. And when you were in the middle of an attack from the enemy, you claim that I, I stand as a child of God, strengthened by the power of God, I am uh, given the strength with the power of God, clothed in the armor of God, and upheld by prayer in the spirit of God. The victory has been won through the sacrifice of Christ. Let that truth saturate your life. And listen to this. The battle may be fierce. Our God is strong. We are victors, not victims. And in the spiritual warfare that rages around us, listen, we are more than conquerors because of Christ who strengthened us. Keep the faith, stand firm, be strong, and remember the battle is already won.